0: Al Jazeera podcast.
1: diplomatic pressure has had little impact on Israel's bombardment of Gaza. More Palestinians are killed every day despite UN-led appeals for a ceasefire. Is there a role for international diplomacy in ending this war? And are positions shifting as the death toll mounts? I'm fully Batibo, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. Well, let's bring in our guests for today's show. Here in Doha is Sultan Barakat, Professor of Public Policy at Hamad bin Khalifa University. He also founded the Centre for Conflict and Humanitarian Studies at the Doha Institute for Graduate Studies. In Islamabad is Maliha Lodi, who served as Pakistan's ambassador to the UK, the US and to the United Nations. And in Berlin, Stephen Erlinger, the Chief Diplomatic Correspondent for Europe for the New York Times. Thank you to all three of you for joining us. Um, Stephen, Erlinger, let me start with you in Berlin. So the US Secretary of State back in the region for the third time since October uh, the 7th. Are you seeing at all a shift in the US position?
2: Uh, Yes, I am, actually. Um, It's not a major shift, but there is a shift in emphasis. The emphasis is on pushing Israel to make sure humanitarian aid gets into Gaza and that there would be pauses, at least for hostage releases. So that is a shift. I think the Americans are obviously uh, listening to criticism coming from other parts of the world. They're very worried about their own interests in the region, and they're worried about Israel's interests in, in the region, and they are urging Israel, as they have, I must say, from the beginning, to be very careful about civilian casualties. Now, whether that urging is effective or not, um, it's for others to judge.
1: Ambassador Lodi, uh, Stephen Erlinger says there seems to be a shift in the US position, but Israel doesn't appear to be in the mood right now. It seems to entertain any talks of a ceasefire. Is there a role for international diplomacy at the moment, nearly a month since this conflict started?
0: Yes, of course. There's always a role for international diplomacy. And I think the reason diplomacy has failed so far is because there hasn't been a significant shift in the U.S. position. Uh, You mentioned the U.N. General Assembly resolution. Uh, Remember that almost two thirds of the U.N. membership of 193 states, out of which 121 gave a resounding yes to the call for a humanitarian truce. It was the United States that opposed it, and in the Security Council, too. uh, The U.S. continues to support, uh, or not support, rather, a ceasefire. Uh, In fact, it's not even in favor of any kind of a humanitarian truce, uh, which is why several resolutions have failed uh, in the Security Council. And even now, as I speak, uh, the E-10 or the 10 elected non-permanent members of the Security Council are still trying to figure out a way that they can come up with a resolution that others can support, but for the for the time being, it seems that the U.S. is not prepared to stop Israel carrying out its massacres of Palestinians, civilian Palestinians, and and the, and it's most unfortunate. So I think we should be very clear mm. uh, to to ascribe the blame for the failure of demo- of of, uh, of diplomacy. Uh, diplomacy where where it belongs.
1: Okay. Uh, Sultan Barakat, your thoughts on this. Stephen Erlinger says there's a shift in the U.S. position. Ambassador Lodi says it's not a significant shift enough. Who, who do you think is to blame for the failure of diplomacy right now?
3: Well, I personally do not see it as a major shift. And, of course, the uh, United States could have predicted the impact of Israel's war on Gaza, because there has been many, many episodes of this. They have supplied the weapons. They know exactly the impact of, uh, of uh, the power Israel can uh, use against uh, civilian areas. So I, I don't see it as a major shift. Uh, however, uh, diplomacy works uh, with uh, normal countries, with normal states. And unfortunately, Israel does not see itself amongst the states of the United United Nations. They uh, see themselves as standing above the law. Uh, There has been a great number of resolutions that have called on Israel to uh, behave in a certain way or to uh, give concessions in others, including uh, back in 2016 when uh, Obama, on his way out of the White House. Uh, abstain from vetoing uh, a very important Security Council resolution that has to do with the expansion of settlements. So Israel, unfortunately, as long as it is, it continues to see itself as the spoiled child of the United States above the law, diplomacy doesn't really work as far as they're, as they're concerned. And uh, this is what we have seen repeatedly in in the Middle East, uh, not only with this war, but uh, as I said many, many times before.
1: All right, Sultan, I'll come back to you in a moment to ask you about the the position of Arab countries right now. But I wanted to bring Stephen in now in terms of uh, the uh, public opinion and global public opinion. We're seeing uh, protests in a number of Western countries in in the U.S. We've seen protests uh, in in countries like uh, the U.K. as well in London. Is that having an impact on uh, the position of some of these Western countries?
2: It certainly is, without question, just as protests in Arab countries is having an impact on Arab leaders also. There is a legitimate fear for Palestinian civilian lives. There is a legitimate desire for the Palestinians to have a state of their own. Um, And some of what we're seeing is simply that. Um, It's in, in democracies, the right to protest is there. It's real. And of course, leaders listen. There are other issues at stake as well, including the right of countries to defend themselves and their obligations. And I stress obligations to defend themselves within the limits of international war and international humanitarian law. Those things are real. I think they're not very well understood. But I think the protests are important and they are legitimate and they are having an impact.
1: All right. Uh, Ambassador Lodi, on the impact of the protests, what are your thoughts about this? Do they have what it takes right now, the momentum it takes to change things around?
0: Well, first of all, I think we must acknowledge that from east to west, uh, the kind of uh, rallies that we are seeing in solidarity with the Palestinians are really unprecedented, all the way from Latin America to East Asia, uh, including, of course, Muslim countries, but some of the largest have been seen in Western capitals like London. Mm-hmm. So I think this is having an impact, certainly, uh, on European countries, because many European countries have uh, are supporting a-, a ceasefire. So they are feeling the impact of these uh public uh, demonstrations. I think also uh, it's sending a clear signal uh, to the United States, these protest rallies, uh, that the United States happens to be on the wrong side of history, that it is allowing uh, Israel to carry on uh, war crimes, massacres, uh, and the kind of ethnic cleansing that we have not seen uh, in recent or modern history. So I think there's a signal from these protest uh, demonstrations, and there is also a sense that the world opinion as expressed both by countries uh, reflected in the UN General Assembly resolution, as well as world opinion expressed by publics in the world, across the world, they're all saying the same thing. They want the fighting to stop and they want the fighting to stop now. And they also want justice for the people of
1: Palestine. Sultan Barakat, Our opinion now, a rather timid response so far from Arab leaders, even though the Arab street has been boiling. Uh, A number of countries, though, have hardened their positions uh, in recent days, including Jordan and Bahrain, which have uh, ended diplomatic relations with Israel. But it would seem that some Arab countries, uh, their normalization with Israel in recent years has prevented stronger condemnation of, of Israel's actions in Gaza. Do you think a move like Jordan's is likely to make any difference at all? Could other countries follow Jordan's example?
3: Yes, well, I think uh, diplomatically... Uh, there has been condemnation, and in some cases, like in the Gulf states, although maybe Emirates has not put out something independent, the statement that was presented at the General Assembly on behalf of the Gulf states was very clear in con- condemning the attacks uh, and uh, blaming Israel for the massacres, and also presenting or calling uh, attention again to the Arab peace plan, which was uh, devised by the late King Abdullah of Saudi Arabia. So in- Individual countries uh, may not have taken a uh, uh, sharp, uh, clear uh, d- position in the hope maybe to salvage some kind of normalization, particularly I think here maybe we can point out to Saudi Arabia that has taken very ambiguous uh, uh, stand on this issue right. until this moment.
1: Why uh, do you think that is? I mean, we, we, we heard and saw Yemen's Houthi rebels earlier this week uh, declare war on Israel, firing missiles towards Israel. How much do you think that complicates regional, di- de- re- regional diplomacy, especially for a country like Saudi Arabia?
3: I think Saudi Arabia is very much focused on achieving its 2030 uh, vision and the whole idea of engaging with peace talks with Iran and also encouraging the talks in Yemen and so on was trying to look for a greater degree of stability, part of which uh, it has been arranged with the United States that there will be a normalization with Israel and that Israel will come to the protection of Saudi Arabia and so on. Now some of those assumptions I think now can can be legitimately questioned by the Saudi public. But this is, by and large, the, the bigger idea. So they would hope that this thing uh, ends as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you know, as you may have noticed, in fact, they have not even suspended the Riyadh festival, which right. is uh, a music and, uh, and dance festival, in contrast to what has happened in many other Arab capitals. Now going back to Jordan, which I think is very important, this is the one country that matters most as far as Israel. Jordan uh, shares the longest border with Israel. It has uh, a large number of Palestinian refugees living in it, who are now boiling in, uh, based on what they see on their TV. They're uh, volunteering to go and fight. There's a lot of pressure on the, in, in the streets. Uh, and they've had to act, despite the fact that they're also heavily dependent on financial aid from the United States, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I'm sure they must have been uh, talked uh, of by the United States uh, as a result of first snapping, snapping the uh, visit by uh, Biden. President Biden. And now, yes, when yeah. he first came to the region, they refused to meet with them. And now taking this position, they they are caught between two fires. Uh, One is this dependency on the United States and their dependence uh, dependence on a peace agreement with Israel, which they've tried to protect on many, many occasions for almost 30 years. There has been a lot of incidents, and Jordan has consistently managed to keep that diplomatic relationship going. But I think they they must feel uh, uh, ignored uh, and uh, undervalued by the Israeli side. Right, Uh, Stephen, let me ask you um, about
1: that. Sorry to interrupt you, Sultan. I just wanted to bring Stephen on that, on on Jordan's position, Stephen, and whether, you know, Jordan uh, uh, withdrawing its ambassador right now uh, to to Israel. Is that a concern in Washington and other Western capitals? Because Jordan has been, of course, an interlocutor in this crisis. Uh, And, you know, is Washington today concerned that it could be on a collision course with a lot of these Arab countries, some of which are allies?
2: Um, I don't think there's overmuch concern. I think everyone understands the difficulty the king of Jordan finds himself in, which was just very well analyzed. The same problem is with Egypt, which is another very crucial peace treaty ally with Israel. And of course, Egypt holds the keys to the other part of Gaza and the keys to humanitarian aid and lots of things. So it is a very awkward moment. The one thing I would say that hasn't really quite come up yet is most of these, and I would say most of these Sunni Arab states are no great friends of Hamas. They are no great friends of Islamist radicalism, which threatens them, and no great friends of the Muslim Brotherhood, So this is another reason for their ambivalence. They have to respond to public opinion, but they really are not particularly eager for Hamas to come out of this
3: strengthened.
1: Do you want to respond to that, Sultan Barakat? Do you agree with Stephen on that point?
3: I agree in principle yes i mean they have been uh, uh, vocal about this some of those countries have listed hamas as a terrorist organization despite the fact that it is not listed by the united nations and they've uh, associated them with the muslim brotherhood however there has been changes within hamas uh, particularly starting from 2017 you know the rewriting of its uh, charter was an important milestone in that the fact that they've distanced themselves from the muslim brotherhood publicly and they said, we have nothing to do with political Islam regionally, globally. We are very focused on our cause of uh, liberation, which, again, is, uh, is a right protected to them by the UN Charter. So there has been some developments. It may have not uh, been fully appreciated across the region. But uh, although the the governments and the rulers may wish to see something else, they would like to see uh, more secular authority in Gaza. They understand fully uh, well that it's impossible to have that kind of government in a situation like Gaza. You cannot uh, uh, allow uh, occupation and uh, the siege of Gaza to continue, and expect people to have a normal life where they would uh, entrust themselves to to an authority that calls for greater understanding with the Israelis.
1: All right, and I will come back to you, uh, Sultan, in a minute to ask you about what next. You know. If and when Hamas is uh, out of the picture in Gaza, then then what's next? And what about the PLO uh, in, in the West Bank? What role could it play here? But I wanted to ask Ambassador Lodi first about the way forward. You've said, Ambassador, that mediating the end of this conflict through diplomacy is still possible. So what then needs to happen in order to get both sides to come to the negotiating table? And is that likely to happen anytime soon? Or are we looking at several more weeks of fighting?
0: Well, I think the answer to that question really lies in Washington, because until and unless the United States uh, begins to see uh, that its one-sided stance and its completely unconditional blind support for Israel is landing the entire Middle East in the kind of instability whose consequences and repercussions will, will go on and on and on for years and years to come. I mean, this is not going to go away. So therefore, I think the room for diplomacy is always there. Uh, even in the U.N. Uh, Security Council, uh, there is an opportunity still, if the U.S. is able to step back and look at what's happening, uh, thanks to uh, the kind of support that it has given uh, and emboldened Israel with, there is an opportunity for a fresh resolution. I think, as far as my understanding goes, the Arab countries, as well as the OIC, the Organization of Islamic uh, Cooperation, the larger Muslim world, uh, they're all trying now to see if they can revive some form of resolution uh, similar to the one in the UN General Assembly in the Security Council. Mm. Uh, If that has the support of, you know, China has uh, this month's presidency and China is very much in support uh, of a ceasefire. So I think the key lies uh, in Washington. Uh, If Washington has enough pressure on it, uh, both from within its country, although it's election year, so we all know what that means, but from the rest of the world, because right now it seems that the resounding outcry uh, in the world is for a ceasefire, is for all these terrible images that we see uh, on our television screens today to stop, uh, right. to halt this uh, bloodshed, carnage, uh, and in, in cold blood, people are being uh, killed uh, in Gaza. So I think the answer does lie in diplomacy, but. For diplomacy to be effective and to succeed, the United States must listen to the rest of the world because at the moment it seems like it's the United States and
1: Israel versus the rest of the world. Stephen Erlinger, Ambassador Lodi says the key lies in Washington and that there is still an opportunity at the UN Security Council. But even if Washington was to to rein in Israel, was to demand a ceasefire today, would the Netanyahu government, which is under domestic pressure also, to to do more, in fact. Would they heed that call from Washington if it came?
2: Well, first of all, Washington is not calling for a ceasefire. Not Um, yet. So that, not yet. Um, But Washington holds a clock in its hand. Every Gaza incursion I've ever covered, and that includes nearly all of them, from inside Gaza, there was always in Washington's hands, a clock. And it's an ugly analysis, perhaps, but it's a measure of civilian pain versus time versus Israeli military aims. And that clock is ticking. Now, because of what happened on October 7, inside Israel proper, with the murder of many people, that clock is likely to run a little longer but the clock exists until when? And until until when? Until
1: wh- which death toll?
2: Well, I I'm not a part of the United States government, and I cannot tell you, right. but it does exist, and I think it will not be as long as the Israelis want it to be.
1: Okay, uh, uh, Sultan Barakat, your, your thoughts about that.
3: I very much agree with the analogy of the clock, and I think the uh, you asked what, what numbers. My fear is that uh, it, it will not stop until Netanyahu, in his own mind, have restored the ratio of one to ten. So we're probably looking at 14,000 casualties before the United States starts putting pressure on, on Israel. The, uh, what is really uh, uh, unfortunate here is the United States missed the opportunity to, to uh, uh, lobby back and galvanize support from the South. To the law-based order that it has instituted with the support you know alongside the western nations in the aftermath of the second world war this order was uh, most challenged a few years ago when uh, we had we witnessed the russia ukraine uh, war and the majority of the southern countries refused to come clearly in support of Ukraine against Russia. And if—and now, with what they are witnessing now, if they were suspecting that they may have taken the wrong position, now they're—now they're 100 now they're percent sure that they're on the right track and that this order doesn't work anymore. It is double standard. It doesn't really apply to them. It is an order that is designed only to serve the Western interest. And, uh, and, of course, Israel is an extension of that. Now, this, this is a missed opportunity, and I think they will come to regret it, particularly given uh, we're moving into Taiwan as another uh, ally that is uh, threatened uh, in, uh, globally for the United States, and uh, as I said, uh, with Ukraine as well. One of the interesting facts to compare now, we have just passed 9,000 uh, civilian casualties in Gaza in, in less than a month. Uh, and that is the figure of uh, civilian casualties in Ukraine in almost two years of mm-hmm. fighting a uh, superpower uh, that is the, the Russia. Uh, we also—we are worrying because now we have two uh, nuclear powers, uh, Russia and uh, Israel, uh, supported by the United States, the them three all engaged in conflicts in our region. Uh, The United States are now present here, uh, the Russians uh, in in relation to Syria. Right. Uh, Right. It's making things extremely complicated. And uh, uh, it goes way beyond just the effect on the Palestinian and the Palestinian cause and what does it mean to Israel.
1: Right. Ambassador Lodi, your thoughts, a complicated uh, future ahead and the scenarios are, are, you know, you can't really decide which way this could go. And also your thoughts about the implications that uh, Sultan mentioned, the implications for Western influence, Western diplomats who spent a great deal of political capital trying to get support for Ukraine from the global south. Have they expended that now?
0: Well, I think Western uh, countries uh, led by the United States are facing a huge crisis of credibility and an erosion uh, in their influence for obvious reasons. Uh, Many of them, uh, like I said before, some European countries did break ranks with the United States and began to support a ceasefire. But as far as the United States and some of its close allies like the United Kingdom are concerned, I don't see them wielding the kind of influence that they did before because they are going to be seen uh, and and completely correctly as just having a one-sided view and completely blind the humanitarian consequences of their own policy. And as for the future and how this will pan out, I think it's hard to say. Uh, But I think the fear of a wider regional conflict is very real. The longer this goes on, the longer uh, Israel continues uh, with its barbaric uh, military actions, the greater the risk that it will begin to suck in and draw in regional states. I mean, nobody wants a wider Uh war. but they may not be able to avoid one if this carries on uh,
1: uh, for any length of time. Stephen, you've covered uh, many conflicts, all the previous conflicts in this region before. Do you do you see a wider regional conflict as a result of what's going on, in, as a consequence of what's going on in Gaza right now?
2: Not, I hope not, because uh, we'll see what Hezbollah ends up doing. But the other word we haven't mentioned yet is the word Iran and its yeah. role in, in the region and its mm-hmm. desires and its ambitions. Iran frightens a lot of Sunni Arab states. It is also dedicated to the elimination of Israel. Mm-hmm. I do not believe Iran had anything to do with the timing of what Hamas did on October 7th, but Iran um, and its reach for regional power and influence i think is something we all have have to consider because iran is also a threshold nuclear state at this right. point point. Um, and so i do worry as everyone worries about a wider conflict i wanted all this to end very quickly i promise you um, but it's going to be a very difficult road ahead i mean i hope what will happen in the end is some kind of international care for Gaza so the people of Gaza can finally live and breathe safe from Hamas and safe from Israeli bombing.
1: All right. We're sure. going to have to leave it there, unfortunately, because we're running out of time. Thank you to all three of you for uh, taking part in this discussion, Sultan Barakat, Maliha Lodi and Stephen Erlinger. This episode was produced by Dermot Fleming, Umi Kulsoom Sharif, Abla Kla, and Gemma Harris. Studio sound was by Mark McDonald. The program was edited by Lynn Nguyen, Vanessa Connelly, and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. Tune in on Saturday for our next edition. Coming up on The Take... Palestinians of the occupied West Bank are facing a rise in Jewish settler violence, backed by Israeli soldiers. That's The Take from Al Jazeera. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.